all the places they could get abortion services in every state. It wasn't just in his own state. He decided he was going to put these billboards up all around the country. I heard one preacher say that, that this governor is setting himself up as a modern-day King Herod. And the billboards he put up in Mississippi and in Oklahoma said, Need an abortion? California is ready to help. And under it, it said, Mark 12, 31, love your neighbors as yourself. An elected official, using the words of our Lord about neighborly love, to advertise taking the lives of our smallest neighbors is about as offensive and disgusting as it gets. How do you respond as a Christian in the face of that sort of evil? That's evil. That's blasphemous evil. I heard one pastor in California get in his pulpit and actually speak directly to the governor and say, if you are listening, forget the politics. I'm worried about the danger of your eternal soul. But how do we react? What is the godly reaction of a disciple of Christ when they see attempts from the world to tear down the kingdom of Jesus? What is our reaction when we see our Lord being transgressed in this way? How do we react to this governor? In John 17, 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we have received Christ's word from him, and it is transforming us to make us more like him, and they hated him, and so then they're going to hate us because of our identification with him, because of the way that we reflect Hopefully, his character and his attitude and his actions and his sacrificial love and the way that we live. And the world is not going to always respond to us with uh, hospitality when we come with this message. In fact, very often we'll be met with the opposite. We will be met with hostility. America has new religions now. America is Unitarian Universalist. Here's Jonathan Charks on this. Jonathan Charks, he's actually a, um, a sports writer who was a believer, and he passed away just a couple of weeks ago. He's in heaven now, young guy. You could pray for his family there in their 30s. But he wrote this. He said, most Americans are Unitarian Universalists. They just don't know it. Only 0.3% of Americans identify as members of the denomination, but its belief system has come to define our culture. The central message of the UU Church is that you can believe anything you want. It's an appealing message for a society that has lost its faith in God. America's becoming more Unitarian Universalist. America's becoming more pantheistic. How many friends do you have that say things like, well, the universe told me, or I just don't think the universe wants me to do that. Pantheism is the religion that sees the universe as God. America's pantheistic, man. We've taken God, the creator, out and replaced it with the creation. America's becoming more and more non-religious. The amount of people claiming to have zero religious affiliation has jumped by 10% in the last 15 years. So here we are in the midst of this scene with the governor putting up those billboards and, and people rejecting Orthodox Christianity all around us more and more. The culture moving away from Christian values and principles that shape so much of Western thought. 
And here we are in the midst of that scene going, hey, hey guys, the universe is not God. It is just a creation of God. It points to the glory of God. And the God who made it also made you, and you are accountable to him. And if you do not want to perish eternally, you must repent of your way of thinking, and you must submit to him. We're here in the midst of this saying there's a book called the Bible that is the objective baseline standard for all truth. And if you deny what it says, your soul is in eternal danger. And that goes through what the Bible has to say about things like sex and gender, where you're not supposed to go against the, the, the grain of widespread cultural views on those subjects. And here we are saying, no, there's only one way to know God. That's from, by, by turning from your sin, putting your trust in his son. All of this is a far cry from believe whatever you want and do whatever makes you happy. And so often the response to our gospel proclamation and the response to our Lord is going to be a response of hostility. And they will go past us and they will turn their words against Jesus himself. And when we see this and hear this, what is the biblical response? This passage this morning helps us answer that question. We're going to pick it up in verse 47. It's right after 46 where Pastor David was last week where he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so we pick it up right there, Luke 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. All of the Gospels record Jesus' arrest, but Luke is the briefest of the four. He's pretty straightforward, um, does, doesn't, doesn't waste any words here. We get a lot more details from the other Gospel accounts, so we'll use them to fill in the blanks as we go. But in verse 47, while Jesus is still speaking, Judas shows up. Luke reminds us he's one of the twelve to just emphasize once again how heinous the betrayal is, right? That this was one of Jesus' friends. And Judas comes um, not alone, he comes with a crowd. John tells us in John 18, 3, who's in the crowd. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. You know, Rome really hasn't been an issue for Jesus in the book of Luke for the most part, because Rome liked to stay out of the way. The only time that Rome really got involved in things if, is if they were concerned about peace. Too much civil unrest wasn't good for Pax Romana, right? They, they wanted to make sure they kept the Roman peace in the empire. But they've clearly been convinced that Jesus is a threat because there are Roman soldiers who are present at Jesus' arrest. In fact, you see everybody working together to try to bring Jesus down. You've got Roman soldiers involved, the chief priests are involved, which likely means the Sadducees have their hands in this. You have the Pharisees involved, and you have Judas the betrayer. These would not even usually be bedfellows. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hated the Romans. They didn't want to work with Rome on anything for any reason, but they're willing to do it here. The Pharisees and Sadducees also couldn't stand each other. They didn't like each other at all. 
They had completely different theological views, different views on uh, the direction that the religion of Judaism should even take in the first century. So they couldn't stand each other, and yet they were working together for this. For all of them to be in cahoots, lobbying together um, and, and getting the Roman government uh, involved, it shows how desperate they are to stop the ministry of Jesus. Judas draws near to Jesus to kiss him, which was the standard way that a student would have greeted their rabbi. It is quite possible that the disciples greeted Jesus with this kiss throughout his three years of ministry, because again, that's what a student of a disciple would have done. And so here you have Judas taking the symbol of loyalty, the symbol of love in Jewish culture, and he's using it as a signal to tip off the authorities. Matthew tells us that this was all a prearranged plan in Matthew 26, 48, where it says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. So in terms of a slap in the face, this is about as bad as it gets. Judas has followed close on Jesus' heels for three years. He's heard him teach. He's seen him do miracles. He's seen him cast out demons. He's seen him raise the dead. And to turn around and to betray him, like some sort of common criminal, and to mask it in affection. It demonstrates just how completely overtaken by satanic evil Judas is at this point. Now John gives us some more helpful details here. In John 18, verse 4, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground, and he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you have gave me, I have lost not one. Look at how the character of Christ is on display even in his arrest. You see his mercy on display in the fact that he doesn't smite the whole lot of them. I mean, he could call down fire from heaven on the whole mob and be done with it, right? But he doesn't do that because, as John told us, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Jesus knows he's on a mission to die. He's born to die. That the purpose of his life is to die for his people. And so he's not going to call down fire from heaven on them. Um, because that would be antithetical to the mission. That being said, he could, and they deserve it. But he's merciful. You see his power in the fact that they all stumble uh, and, and fall backwards, right? And they go to the ground. So here they are with their weapons and they're scheming, and he lays them out simply by stating who he is. He just says who he is, and they all fall back. Again, showing, if I wanted to destroy you, I could destroy you. Nothing is happening to him that he's not volunteering for here. But you also see his shepherd's heart because he says that the Romans and the Jewish leaders should let the disciples go. So as his neck is on the line, he's doing what a sacrificial and loving leader does. He says, you can take me, but let these go. And this was to fulfill the scriptures that the, the disciples that were under his care would not be harmed. What would your response have been to seeing all of this? How would you have responded to seeing these people come for your merciful, powerful, shepherding rabbi and friend? 
He's unlike anybody you have ever met. He's the greatest man you've ever known. You, you love him. If the other disciples are anything like Peter, at least in their heart, they've made a decision that they're ready to die for him. Remember Peter when he said that a couple weeks ago? He's like, Lord, I'll go to prison. I'll die. I'm here. How would you react to seeing him have hands laid on him? Jesus is in the middle of speaking to you and telling you that you need to pray, you need to be on guard for temptation, and suddenly there is a mob walking up, and you see Judas, who left dinner abruptly a little while ago, clearly the betrayer that Jesus predicted. He's leading this mob. You see him approaching Jesus to plant a kiss of loyalty on him. You actually hear Jesus express his disdain, his disgust for this act. And then add into that the fact that you really don't understand Jesus' mission, right? You're still under the impression as a disciple that, hey, at some point, he is going to rally an army here, and we're going to take down Rome, and he's going to sit on David's throne forever, right? That's still the expectation. So you're interpreting things from a worldly point of view. So you got all that in play. What would you have done? I can tell you what you would not have done. You would not have said, hey, everybody calm down. The sovereign Lord is bringing all of this to pass so he can die for our sin. No need to panic. Right? No. You might have that perspective now as you read the scriptures, but that would not have been your feeling in the moment 2,000 years ago. Depending on your personality, you might have thought, let's not do anything rash. Let's see how this plays out. Maybe there's a move we can make somewhere down the line here in the night to get out of this. Now's not the time. Or if you're prone to a lot of fear, you might have thought, I got to get out of here. I don't know how this is going to play out. It can't be my business anymore. I've got to run. I got to get out of here. Or you take out a sword and you try to cut somebody's head off. That's why in verse 49, some of the disciples start going, hey, shall we fight? You want us to get a sword out? You want us to defend you, Jesus? They want to know, is it time or is it time to go on the war path? Is it time to get the swords out? Is it time to overthrow Rome? Just say the word, Jesus, we're ready to rumble. In fact, one of them doesn't even wait. Luke doesn't tell us his name. Matthew doesn't tell us his name. Mark doesn't tell us his name. John goes, it's Peter. I love that. I love that so much. The other three don't say anything, and John goes, no, no, it was Peter. It was Peter. John and Peter, if you read Acts, clearly close friends. I love that John just puts his name out there. John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This sword business shows just how badly the disciples misinterpreted Jesus' teaching in the upper room hours earlier when he told them to get a knapsack and get a money bag and to grab a sword. He was talking about spiritual battle. He wasn't talking about physical battle. And that's clear in his rebuke here. Peter's actions are just silly, though. I mean, in John 18, 3, when it says there was a band of soldiers there to arrest Jesus, the Greek, in most English translations, are more specific and tells us it was a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort was a tenth of a Roman legion. A legion had 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. That means there's 300 to 600 Roman soldiers here for the rest of Jesus. This isn't just Judas and a few Jewish leaders and a couple of Roman soldiers there to make sure things don't get uh, out of hand. Rome have been told 
that there is a revolutionary they have on their hands, and that this revolutionary is claiming he is a king and he's a threat to the empire, they're showing up for a fight. They're not going to show up with a half measure. They've sent at least 300 men there with weapons to make sure that this issue is dealt with. So old Peter, he either thinks, call me Gideon, I'm about to take down every one of them. Or he thinks, well, we're all going to die here tonight, but at least somebody's going out with me. I'm taking at least one head with me. Either way, it's irrational. Either way, it's not helpful. And it underlines, again, the lack of understanding they had about how the kingdom of God advances. Did Jesus come to overthrow Rome? Absolutely he did, just not yet. He also came to overthrow the United States and England and China and Zambia and Brazil and any other throne that does not bow its knee in loyalty to him. But it's not going to look like the military conquests the world has seen before. Here's Tom Schreiner talking about this. He says, ironically, what the opponents of Jesus feared was exactly what was going to happen, but not in the way they expected. Rather than leading an armed revolt, Jesus would disarm his enemies with a willing surrender. Rather than attacking worldly regimes, Jesus would cast out the ruler of this world by laying down his life for his sheep. Jesus would thereby crush the kingdoms of the world, establish his right to sit at the right hand of God, and show himself to be the world's true king. The armies of Rome will be no more successful against him than the armies of Pharaoh were against the Red Sea. Every heart and every throne must willingly surrender to Christ now, or they will be defeated by him later. You bow in humility now, or you bow in judgment later. But God's people advance his kingdom by preaching this, the gospel message. We don't advance the kingdom by wielding swords. I don't say to, you know, we, don't have, a, we have a sign out here as you leave that says, be his workman, you are now entering your mission field, right? Be his workmanship. It doesn't say you are now entering his mission field, strap up, right? Get your weapons ready. That's not what the sign says. Because we're not taking the world with swords. We're taking the world with a message of repentance and love. That's how the kingdom advances. That is how Jesus is conquering the hearts in the nations right now. He's doing it with the gospel. And Peter shows his lack of understanding by trying to kill this man. And I think sometimes we admire the blockheaded courage because you're like, oh, Peter, this is a murder, man. He was, he was trying to cut somebody's head off. Peter was in sin here. We really should not glorify this. And we know it's sin because of how Jesus responds. He rebukes it sharply. He says, no more of this. And he reaches down and he touches the soldier's ear and he heals him. The fact that we learn that the guy's name is Malchus tells us that maybe he became a Christian later. Because a lot of times throughout the New Testament, when you see people being named, it's because the church knew them because they had come to faith. But we don't know. We don't know. I'll tell you what we do know. Just because of human nature. Malchus told this story till the day he died, didn't he? he? He must have told the story of how he came to arrest a Jewish rabbi, and that rabbi cut, or, or, or one of that rabbi's friends tried to cut his head off, missed, only got his ear, and that rabbi on the spot picked it up and touched it back to his head and healed him completely. I imagine that a lot of people heard that story from Malchus over the years, whether he knew the Lord or not. Now, just in case we think Jesus is reserving his only rebuke for Peter, he now turns his attention to the mob. Clearly, they're the real problem. Peter's sinfully acted here, but his, his act is a reaction. The root of the issues is this mob of sinners who has come to lay their hands on the God of the universe and to have him put on trial with capital punishment looming. 
He looks at the chief priests and the officers of the temple, and he says, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? You're really coming at me like some sort of dangerous criminal? I've been down in the temple teaching all week long. Remember he spent the first half of Holy Week teaching in the temple, right? He's like, I've been down there in the temple teaching. You could have put your hands on me at any point. I wasn't posing a threat. I wasn't trying to rile the people up or any of that. And you're going to come here and you're going to treat me like some sort of robber, some sort of common criminal? But he says to him, this is your hour in the power of darkness. It's a rebuke that cuts right through the circumstances and it speaks to the heart of those who are wanting to do harm to him. Do you know why they didn't put their hands on him in the temple? They couldn't because they were too scared of the people. That's why they didn't put their hands on him in the temple. Because the people were listening and hanging on every one of his words. Their hearts hadn't been turned against him yet. So if they were to go and grab him and try to drag him before the Roman authorities, the people would have revolted. And then who was Rome mad at? Not Jesus. Mad at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, the, and, and those who are disrupting the peace. So they couldn't do that. So they came by night like cowards. And he speaks to them like cowards. You come here in darkness to treat me like a criminal? It makes no sense. It's craven. But it's your time and your Lord Satan is at work. So go ahead and do what you came to do. By acting in this way, they have exposed themselves for the cowards they are, for the sinners that they are. They come in darkness because they're creatures of darkness. Their hearts are filled with sin, and that sin has led them to the unthinkable place where they are going to try to murder God. I think that Peter, if we were to pinpoint his mistake, was too shallow in how he was looking at that situation in the garden. He missed the spiritual realities in play, realities that Jesus had taught him about, but he just didn't understand yet. And I think sometimes that we are too shallow in how we look at the world. There is plenty of moral degradation in the world, no doubt about that. There's a growing lack of belief of God all around us. I mentioned that at the start. We got a pornography problem in this country. We have a pornography industry in this country that our politicians seem fine to harbor and to allow it to carry on even though it is rife with all sorts of sexual slavery. It is as evil as anything that exists on this earth and we turn a blind eye to it and we just act like, well, it's just what red-blooded American guys do. They look at it. It's evil. We have a culture of death we are fostering in our society and how we deal with the unborn and the elderly. We have corrupt politicians who don't seem to truly care about us or our country. They just want to stay in power. We have a new code of sexual ethics where even pedophilia is now gaining traction to be looked at as a natural sexual orientation. And sometimes, I think as believers, we see this stuff and we want somebody to blame. So what do we do? We go, it's the woke agenda. It's the Democrats. It's Donald Trump. It's the media. It's Hollywood. It's Mickey Mouse. It's the NFL. Listen, if you want to know why society is degrading, you can't stop there. You can't go, well, society is degrading because of the liberals, or deciding is degrading because of the conservatives, or it's degrading because of, of, of Disney. It's too shallow. Romans 1 tells us why society is falling apart all around us morally. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do uh, what ought not to be done. That's how society falls apart. People suppress the truth that they can clearly see that God exists and he has made the world and they suppress that truth so they can can continue on in their sin and live as if they are not accountable to their maker. I was watching uh, the show about the, the great patriot John Adams and his wife Abigail looked at one of their children and said, remember, you are accountable for every one of your actions to your creator. We live in a culture where people are trying to suppress that reality so they can do whatever they want to do. And in their futile thinking, they start worshiping creation instead of the creator. Hello, the universe told me, right? And this idolatry leads them to dishonorable passions, including all sorts of sexual immorality. They have rejected God. He has given them up to their own minds as part of their judgment. And that is the reality we see playing out all around us in our culture. To sum it up, people have rejected God so they can live with no fear of God, and their lack of fear of God is the catalyst for their sinful lifestyle and our sinful society. See, Satan doesn't need America to worship him. He just needs us to not worship God. If he can convince us that God doesn't exist and we don't have to fear him, well, his work is going swimmingly. And that is why we cannot be so shallow as to just blame all of the earthly institutions and earthly people that are around us for all of the problems that we see in the world. It's much worse than you think it is. Because it goes beyond those institutions. It goes beyond people. It's truly satanic. The horrible attitudes and actions that only seem to be multiplying in the hearts of people are a result of the devil's work. Now, here's why I say all this, and here's what it has to do with Peter in the garden and the sword. If we do not understand the source of immorality, we will not have the proper response to immorality. Because if we think that sin is just the result of bad people doing bad things, then we'll think, well, we just got to get rid of those bad people. And then we go to war with them. Isn't that the way that the world reacts? I don't like that person, they're my enemy, they must be eradicated. I remember seeing HBO Emmy award-winning talk show host John Oliver give a very long monologue about the evils of organized religion on his show. It, It began with Scientologists. How in the world I'm getting blamed for anything they did? I mean, come on. You know, it's not even close. But he's on there talking about Scientology and how evil it is and then he says, but they're just part of the problem, it's all organized religion. And then he goes on a 10 minute 
uh, you know, uh, pitch for the U.S. government to strip churches of their tax-exempt status so that we would no longer afford to be able to exist. And he said, what if we lose a, a, a few soup kitchens in the process? Well, that's just stupid. He clearly just doesn't understand how much the church does in this country. But that is how the world thinks. Organized people who, who are involved in organized religion, they disagree with me. I need to vent my anger toward them and destroy them. That's how the world works. And isn't that what we're seeing from Peter in the garden? He thinks that the problem in the garden is the mob, and he thinks the mob can be cared for with a sword. He's shallow in his understanding of the source of the issue, therefore his response is ungodly. Similarly, if we think that the moral issues of our society can be traced back to some person or party, then you know what we're going to do? We're going to go, well, then we just need to eradicate those people. Let's get rid of them. But isn't that just answering the world's problems with the world's solutions? Again, that's what we see Peter doing. The men of the world came to Christ with swords, and so Peter says, I will answer their sword with a sword of my own. And I don't think we can hold our Bibles in our hands and be that short-sighted in how we see the world and how we respond to the world. We are big-picture people as Christians. And here's what I mean by that. We know God has created the world and the world was good. We know that Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell, and sin and death came into the world. We know sin and death will make a mess of this world over and over until Jesus comes back. We know that God sent his son Jesus to die for sin and provide salvation for anybody who repents of their sin and puts their trust in him. We know Jesus rose again to win against sin and death, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we know one day, indeed, he will come again, and he will judge the living and the dead, and anyone who did not bow their knee to him in faith will bow their knee to him in judgment. And in the end, he will vanquish every bit of evil and every enemy who threatened his throne. That's the big picture story. We're big picture people. That story forms our story. That narrative drives our narrative. And that big picture keeps us from stopping short and blaming all the ills of society purely on human institutions and those who run them. It reminds us that underneath all the evil we see, there is the enemy Satan and his tools of sin and death. And he is trying to destroy souls and drag them into hell with him. One day Jesus will return. One day Jesus will unleash holy vengeance upon those enemies. Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
In the end, he will return and he will make war on all evil. And not just evil is this like impersonal thing, okay? He is going to make war on all sinners who have committed evil by transgressing his law and have refused to repent of it. So evil in those who commit it will have its day in court with God. But until then, we are left to wait. Your job is to not take out your sword and cut the heads off of those who harm the name of God. Your job is not vengeance. Actually, your job's the opposite. It's love. How are you supposed to be interacting with the enemies of Jesus right now? By loving them. But, but they're, they're doing this and they're doing... By loving them. Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves. There's no out clause in that. There's no, yeah, but, what if this happens or this happens? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary. So, not only do you not avenge yourself, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance belongs to God. God will defeat his enemies in the end through the royal power of the Son. But not you. You're not the one on the right horse. It's Jesus. You say, well, what belongs to me then? What's my job? The task of overcoming evil with good. That's your job. Until he returns, that's your job. And Paul illustrates that job in the simplest of ways, doesn't he? If your enemy's hungry, give him food. If your enemy's thirsty, give him drink. You know, I, I obviously in this church, I, I, you know, we have people that have political thoughts, okay? If you are a conservative this morning, you might look at a woman like Nancy Pelosi as your enemy. But if Nancy Pelosi walked in this church today, are you ready to give her a drink and are you ready to give her food? Or when she appears in your TV, do you kind of wish harm on her in your heart? What about if you're a liberal and you see our former president Donald Trump come on TV and you have some very strong feelings about him and maybe you consider that man to be your enemy, would you give President Donald Trump a drink of water? Would you give him food? Let's take it down to the little, the, the, the more uh, realistic level. Your boss, who is domineering, unrelenting, unforgiving, graceless, is in dire need, and you have the opportunity to laugh at him or her. Would you give him food? Would you give him water? What about that family member? Who has hurt you? Do you trust God enough to wait on him to vent his anger righteously? Or do you trust in your own flesh so much that you must vent your anger yourself and you must avenge yourself in an unrighteous manner? If we lose track of the big picture, the gospel story, and we become short-sighted in how we think about these things, you'll end up taking matters into your own hands and in your attempts to stand for the Lord, you will sin against the Lord. By venting your anger, 
whether it's just a status post on Facebook or it's actually harming somebody. What are you saying, Pastor? We don't stand up in the face of evil and speak truth? No, we do that, but we do it in love. Oh, oh, I see Jesus calling people a pit of snakes. He had no sin in his heart. Most of you are not ready for that. Most of you are not ready to stand up in front of somebody. And, and, and by the way, when I say most of you, I'm not ready for it. I got too much sin in my own heart to stand up in front of somebody and start saying things like pit of snakes, brood of vipers, whitewashed tomb. I'll leave that to the Lord. Because as I read the scriptures, certainly we have a responsibility to stand up to evil and to say that's wrong. But when they respond to us and they say, well, if you think that's wrong, I'm going to end you. I'm going to eradicate you. I'm going to destroy you. Our response to them is, would you like some water? Would you like some food? Would you like some love? And if you are just determined that you must see some negative thing fall on the head of your enemy in some way, just keep in mind that the scriptures tell us that as you take that food and that water and that clothing and that love and pour it out on your enemy, it's like pouring hot coals on their head because they don't know what to do with that. I hate you. Would you like some water? What's wrong with you? You know what I mean? It makes their head literally burn. They can't handle it. But that's exactly what we should be doing. We have got to respond in a scriptural way to hostility that comes against the church and our Lord. As the band comes, I'll say this. A lot of times I hear Christians seething. And they're so angry about all the things that are going on. And the pastor stands up and says, vengeance doesn't belong to you. And they say, but what do we do? Remember what I said earlier. In the age of the church, Jesus is conquering the hearts of his enemies with the love of the gospel. And so the very best thing that you could do is not to simply give food or water to your enemy or clothing to your enemy. The best love that you can show your enemy is to share the gospel with them. Is to tell them that Jesus is real and they are accountable to him and that he died for their sins and they must repent of their sin and put their trust in him or one day they will stand before him in judgment and they will have to answer for their sins on their own. We need to tell them that God has provided a loving sacrifice in his son for their sin. We need to tell them there is a way of salvation that there's only one way to know God, but that that way is open to them if they would humble their hearts and repent. That's what we tell them. And sometimes the best way to tell them is to give them food and say there's a kingdom coming where you're not going to have to worry about food anymore. And to give them water and say a kingdom's coming, you're not going to have to worry about this water anymore. But we must give them the gospel. You want your enemy to be conquered? That's how your enemy is conquered in the here and now, through the love of the gospel. Jesus will conquer their heart and they repent and they become a worshiper like you. And then they go from being an enemy to a brother and a sister. And if they won't do that, if they won't repent, well, then God will vent his anger on his day. Until then, you just keep doing good, understanding that this is how the kingdom is won in the here and now. Judgment will come, but you have a job right now. It is not to vent your anger and swing your sword. As Christ is betrayed over and over again by sinful men all around us, our job is to do the good of telling them that he died for betrayers like me and you. And to show them that the sacrificial love that he has poured out at the cross 
is in his church, to show him with our thoughts and our words and our deeds. Vengeance is the Lord's, but he's given you a great gospel work until that day comes. Let us do it. Father God, I pray right now that we would not vent our anger. Lord, that we would not be a people of vengeance. It's the way the world is. That's how they're talking to each other. That's how they're dealing with each other. That's how they're screaming. That's how they are yelling. Let us enter into that conversation with love, Lord. We must be known by our love. Our love for one another, but also our neighborly love. Not the twisted, disgusting neighborly love that this corrupt governor in California is trying to push on this world. No, Lord, the neighborly love that says, you hate me, but I give you water. You hate me, but I give you food. You hate me, but I give you the gospel, the greatest news the world has ever known. God, make us a people of love, not a people of vengeance. That can only happen by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.